Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Those are voices of the descendants of abolitionist Frederick Douglass in a moving video by NPR that was widely circulated over the holiday weekend. Some of Douglass's great-great-great-great-grandchildren read excerpts from one of his most famous speeches, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. He gave that speech in Rochester in 1852. The New York Times reported on Saturday that Yale's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library acquired a set of Douglas's family scrapbooks and a collection that included manuscripts or typescripts of some of Douglas's most famous speeches, including the one we just heard. I want to welcome our panel to today's show. Colin McEnroe is away this week, but with us now is Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. You can follow her at Capitol Watch. Daniela, welcome back. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Bill Curry is with us. He's a political analyst, former Democratic nominee for governor and advisor in the Clinton White House. Bill, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Lucy. And making his wheelhouse debut today, Charles Venator Santiago, associate professor of political science at UConn. Charles, welcome to the wheelhouse. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You can also join us. Find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. I wanted to play more of that speech read by Douglas's young descendants. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality. Hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings. With all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. And again, you can see that full video of Douglas's descendants reading portions of his speech. Uh, just search uh, The Wheelhouse uh, on uh, Twitter. I wanted to start with you, Bill. When you hear those words spoken by the young descendants of Douglas, what was your reaction? First of all, it was uh, just simply to be deeply moved. Uh, I, I don't... I'd be hard pressed to explain why uh, it has such emotional content to hear those descendants recite those words. Um, somehow it makes us feel our own connection to Douglas, I think even more strongly um, witnessing theirs. But um, I, I really, I'm so happy 
that over the last few years, uh, uh, Douglas has been increasingly um, cited and, and consulted. I don't think there's a more instructional figure in American history. Uh, he was uh, clearly uh, one of the two best rhetoricians of, the, of his century, along with Abraham Lincoln. And he was so, uh, his unerring judgment on issues and his political instincts were just amazing. People talk about intersectionality today, by which they mean how race, class, gender, all conspire in different ways to affect a person's life. Uh, Douglas spoke at women's suffrage uh, conventions all over the country and said that he didn't want rights just for one group and not another. Uh, he was prescient in wanting the Constitution uh, to be uh, the, the basis upon which we base the struggle for equality. Uh, he was skeptical of the, highly skeptical of the Back to Africa movement and all the great debates of the abolition age. Uh, Douglas ended up on the right side and his writing was beautiful. That, that speech is wonderful. My favorite is when he did about five years later regarding emancipation in, uh, in the West Indies. Could I read just a sentence of it to you? Sure, Bill. Yeah, just, uh, he said, uh, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom, but oppose agitation, uh, are men who want crops without plowing the ground, rain without thunder and lightning, the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Um, it's uh, something that uh, progressives, uh, Frederick Douglass has been long uh, someone in progress, someone who in progressive gatherings has been cited and quoted among progressive, all manner progressive movements, precisely because his understanding of power and its operation society was so universal. Mm. Uh, Charles, uh, Frederick Douglass at the time was again speaking in 1852 about slavery. But when you hear those words today, the fact that this speech is, uh, has a lot of attention uh, uh, recently, especially because of the moment that our country is in right now. Do you feel that some of those points are still relevant today? <laughs> well, uh, Douglas for me is important in two ways. Uh, well, in more, in more ways than two. But on the one hand, I really appreciate this idea of focusing on the contradictions and ironies mm -hmm. of celebrating the 4th of July. I, I really liked how the children or his descendants mm -hmm. uh, spoke about that because it helped us understand power and how politics are a work in progress on a regular basis. For me, it's helped me to understand sort of more complex philosophical questions of the, of the work that I do. I, I study U.S. territorial politics. And it's full of contradictions. Uh, mm -hmm. On the one hand, we celebrate the 4th of July. And on the other hand, uh, Puerto Rico and the other territories are asking, well, you know, why are we still colonies? <laughs> and you're celebrating the independence of, of England, um, which for me raises an interesting uh, contradiction in Douglas uh, is because he was an imperialist. Uh, he was in 50, 1851. He joined the grant uh, or Ulysses Grant asked him to join a special commission to talk about the annexation of the Dominican Republic or Santo Domingo at the time. Um, but it's, it's his emphasis on, uh, on those contradictions that help us, I think, uh, think about politics as a work in progress uh, in, in a good direction. I think uh, even in his imperialism, Douglas uh, still thought that uh, for Dominicans to join the United States would be a good thing because it, it would bring progress and uh, it would bring more wealth to the island. Uh, but it, but for me, that's the key to Douglas, this idea of continuing to work and not settle for 
a fixed reality. Hmm. Uh, Daniela, we know slavery was indeed abolished and replaced by segregation that was found unconstitutional. Now we have de facto segregation. There's plenty of unequal economic opportunity in this country. This is what protesters today are calling attention to. Uh, This is something that young people, especially when we talk about contradictions, this is what they're uh, focused on. And so when we think about this moment again that we're in, when you're out there in the community, do you feel that people feel like this is a moment where something can be solved? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to know what will become of the moment when you're in the moment, but it, there does seem to be a sense that things are different this time, that there's really um, this sort of uh, difficult reckoning that um, the killing of uh, George Floyd in, in Minneapolis has sort of set off, and in the context of all these other um, horrific uh, injustices uh, perpetuated by the police. This has sort of spread, been spread into other areas. And um, certainly there is a sense um, that this time is different and things may change. I wanted to go back to you, Bill. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, you know, I, did, I just want to pick up on something that Charles said that I really agree with and that you were also highlighting, Lucy, and that is the complexity of Frederick Douglass, uh, uh, but also... Uh, the complexity that Douglas was capable of apprehending. He he saw people. He really respected Lincoln, mm. not because he uh, uh, idealized him in an, in an unrealistic way, but because he saw him. He saw who he was, and and respected it. And he was often criticized for meeting with slave owners, uh, which he did on a number of occasions. Uh, and uh, he believed deeply in that dialogue. There's this thing going on right now about how we teach history. And uh, Trump in his, in, in his recent speeches has been claiming that, that, per, that, that, that people who are protesting now wanna rewrite history and turn it into propaganda. And uh, one, I would say that the truth is the opposite, but two, one of the lessons of Douglas is that you can respect flawed uh, people and you can negotiate with people with flawed ideas and that seeing each other with clear eyes uh, in the end leads to greater respect and understanding, not less. I wanted to read a quote uh, that a a woman in Manchester, she's a Board of Education member, Tracy Patterson, uh, you know, there was a a recent press conference because of uh, some racial incidents that have happened, uh, Governor Lamont and others, uh, again, in Manchester, July 1st, condemning racial slurs and hate crimes after two men there were arrested uh, because they uh, chased uh, young uh, black teenagers in Manchester, yelling racial slurs at them, uh, officials condemning uh, this kind of behavior. In Mystic, recently, a black motel worker from Groton was assaulted by two white New York residents. This is a frustrating time because uh, before George Floyd, many Americans Charles may think that you know racism isn't a big deal, but obviously black and brown Americans see uh, the reality of what goes on in their lives each and every day. And it's these incidents that get attention, but there are many incidents of discrimination that happen each day, microaggressions. Is America finally waking up? <laughs> you know, I'd like to say I, I, I hope, uh, but you know, I've read several articles about how students, for example, are thinking about these issues and how these issues are now being documented. Uh, it, and it reminds me of the time that I was pursuing an undergrad degree almost 30 years ago. 
And this was normal. 30 years ago at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, I'm sorry, in Amherst, uh, I was experiencing some of these issues. Mm -hmm. I think the difference now is that we're covering it, where we're, the people are on the streets are documenting with cell phones and it's available to the public. So in that sense, I think there's movement in one direction, hopefully in a more progressive direction. But but again, I've, I've, I've been hearing and experiencing and listening and watching these kinds of events on a regular basis for 30 years while I've been here in the mainland, the United States. Mm. Uh, Danielle, I'm wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about what you're hearing from lawmakers about this moment, uh, again, um, this time where, um, you know, parts of our communities may be waking up to the realities again of what uh, black and brown Americans experience each day. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, everything that's uh, been said is so true that, you know, things that maybe um, weren't um, weren't documented, weren't highlighted, people are speaking out. I mean, we recently wrote about this phenomenon among uh, the elite private schools in the state where students and alums, uh, both old and new, were... Uh, reciting their experiences on on the internet using social media and you know it's just it's horrific and you know the type of stuff that people uh endured for for you know decades and decades at, at some of these places that are seen as you know uh the the elite of uh Connecticut education is is just so deeply troubling and i think um you know talking about how people are just really saying enough you know these whether it's you know examples of you know overt uh and and just completely um inappropriate and cruel racism or these microaggressions that people uh, you know have been have been living with uh, i think there's a sense that this is going to stop now and we're going to speak out about this and we're going to call people out in some cases by name because uh this is done we've had enough Hmm. Tell us more about that reporting uh, that you and your colleagues did, Daniela. What were some of those experiencing experiences those students um, dealt with in terms of, of their, their white peers? I mean, these are, so we've written a number of different stories, both at uh, the college level, you know, certainly schools such as Trinity and really any school, um, you know, uh, mentioning, you know, uh, what they've, what they've dealt with. And then you saw it sort of filtered down starting in New York City with some of these uh, very elite private schools and spreading to Connecticut and other places. And the experiences of people on, people of color on these incredibly white campuses, um, it's just so um, distressing and painful to read what, um, what these students ha had to endure. You know, strangers coming up and touching their hair, people assuming, you know, just automatically they were there on scholarship. People assuming, you know, this one woman wrote, actually, I shouldn't say it's a woman. I, I don't know. I don't think they identified the gender, but this one alum wrote in that, you know, uh, people, uh, she mentioned she liked me the person mentioned they like music and um, their classmates were like, well, is it rap or hip hop? And actually the person said, well, I'm a, you know, classically trained in choral music and classical music. You know, it was just these assumptions that are made about people. Um, it, it, it was just really uh, disturbing and yet also really sort of 
heartening to see people speaking out and saying, you know, this this is going to end these types of stereotypes and biases and outright cruelty and insensitivity and racism. It's it's we're done. We're not going to take it anymore. We're going to call people out on this. Mm. Bill, I mentioned this Manchester Board of Ed member, Tracy Patterson. Uh, she said at this press conference that uh, we are in the second phase of the civil rights m- movement. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I was thinking about the Me Too movement, which isn't as much in the headlines mm-hmm. now and may not be again, but which has fostered such an extraordinary change in all kinds of institutions that I think will roll on for a long time. Um, and and there just comes this moment of recognition for millions of men and even many women about how profound uh, the oppression of women in the workplace and elsewhere and in the home, for that matter, has been for since forever. Uh, and part of, you know, compassion and understanding are both acts of imagination. And uh, there are things that are right in front of us sometimes even that we can't imagine. I just want to compliment Danielle. I thought that article was terrific. It reminds me of why I subscribe to the current. Uh, and it's uh, just showing that the, I think those anecdotes were well chosen and, and, uh, and highly uh, in- instructive. Uh, I've often thought that a part of the problem, that, that there is surely a, a, a pernicious and enduring racism among many people in this country. But there's also simply a lack of connection. You know, he Forster said only connect. And uh, and I, I, I sometimes envision white churches and black churches just having setting up sort of like sister city programs where people are just brought into one room for dinner. Uh, I think if much of our dominant white culture understood how much it's missing by its estrangement from uh, people of color and from all the rich cultures that come pouring in here, all of our discussions would be so different. Uh, you know, we're just like, uh, I, I think sometimes, you know, boys and girls at a seventh grade dance on opposite sides of a gymnasium and not knowing how to, you know, not knowing how to cross the floor. Uh, one of the things we ought to be doing now is finding ways to just literally bring people together, uh, not just say things we think they can agree on, but to get people in the same room and let them see each other uh, and let the whole country see how much it's missing. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, Charles? Yes, go ahead. So I, one of the things that the civil rights movement was really successful doing was mobilizing people across the nation for legislative change mm-hmm. or political change. For, and I, I talked to a lot of activists, and again, this is anecdotal, uh, who don't, do not want anything to do with the government. They, they self-describe themselves as anarchists or revolutionaries. But and I, I'm missing a lot, a little bit more of the legislative initiative. Sure, there are police reform initiatives, but I'm wondering if, if, if what's missing here is a national agenda to reform laws or to change laws uh, that hasn't been re- articulated in a cohesive way. Because I'm seeing a lot of democratic outspurts all over the nation, which is great. Uh, helps in conscious raising, <clears throat> but I'm wondering what happens to the to the actual legislative change, legal change, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I say that is because when I was reading the the quotes in the article that we just discussed on uh, elite students, those statements I was hearing 30 years ago at the University of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. 10 years later when I was a resident director and had in a multicultural residence hall, I was still re- listening to students making those comments, and I'm still listening to uh, or, or reading those comments that are 
almost uh, the same comments that that I've seen for a long time here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wonder whether we need a legislative change, a legal change that's going to crack down on some of this abuse. Mm -hmm. Charles, can I just say something? I think that's an excellent point. And on the one hand, uh, people will respond correctly that law enforcement is largely a matter of local administrative and financial responsibility. But it, it, it's as true of this as it is of climate change, as it has been painfully true of, of, of the, the COVID-19 crisis, that absent a strong federal leadership, strong uh, federal laws, and, 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 and not just suggestions, but requirements, uh, we can't get uh, to policies that are sufficient to solve, whether it's healthcare, law enforcement, uh, yeah. and, and all, any, any great issue that we, that we face. And, uh, and, and so making that, I think people are learning it right now. They're, they're seeing what happens in the absence of a strong federal government. The nature of our problems is such that the weakness of our federal government comes perilously close to making us a failed state. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to read this uh, tweet from Kathy. Uh, she think, looks and hears about this speech, uh, again, that we played at the top, again, Frederick Douglass. Uh, and she said that speech is as relevant today as it was when it was first delivered. The question is, when will policymakers actually do something to make substantive change and dismantle systemic racism? We're going to be talking about that right after the break because the Connecticut General Assembly is going to be meeting in special session. There have been calls to go beyond just looking at police accountability bills but to think about ways that Connecticut can tackle institutional racism. We're going to learn more about what some of those proposals are after the break. Uh, with me today on The Wheelhouse, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, Bill Curry, political analyst and former Democratic nominee for governor, as well as advisor in the Clinton White, White House, and Charles Venator Santiago, associate professor of political science at UConn. You can join us too. Find us on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the panel today, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Political analyst Bill Curry is here with us and Charles Venator Santiago, a UConn political science professor. You can join us too at WNPR Wheelhouse. Now, the Connecticut General Assembly, they're going to hold a special session later this month. I think the date now is July 20th and possibly a second special session in September to consider some sort of police accountability bill in response to the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. Lawmakers are also expected to consider allowing greater use of absentee ballots during the November election to protect voters from COVID-19. Daniela, I'll start with you. What do we know about the latest in terms of police accountability that the General Assembly will consider in another week or so? Yeah, um, well, we haven't seen uh, the bill, um, so we don't know. Um, but I know that the um, Black and Puerto Rican Caucus at the legislature uh, is looking for um, action on six uh, broad areas. Uh, you mentioned voting uh, issues, police accountability, economic justice, um, housing policy, uh, equity in education, and um, environmental justice, I think, is the 
is the other one. Um, and um, they're, they're still working on it, but, you know, some of the things I think it, it could include uh, a ban on chokeholds by police, better training, um, anti-bias training for one thing, um, you know, um, making uh, the parameters, tightening the parameters for the use of deadly force, um, greater uh, taking more, uh, putting more effort into recruiting um, candidates that, uh, you know, officers that look like the communities they're, they're serving um, and banning the, those no-knock warrants that was uh, the case in uh, Louisville with Breonna Taylor where she was um, murdered by uh, police um, who were executing one of these warrants. So those are some of the things. Um, but again, we haven't really seen the language yet. Um, some lawmakers, I know Brandon McGee, Representative Brandon McGee, uh, is looking for um, even sort of a broader uh, look at how police do their jobs. Um, for instance, you know, uh, there was a trend in policing. Um, I don't know enough about it to know if it's still uh, the prevalent thinking, but certainly in much of the 90s, this idea of broken windows policing um, where, you know, officers would be dispatched for a whole variety of crimes that some people are now, or not necessarily crimes, but more quality of life issues that some people are now saying would far better be handled by social workers or teachers or other sort of uh, people um, who are trained in different ways who aren't trained uh, in law enforcement. So there's, a, you know, perhaps there'll be some discussion of that as well. Um, so it's, you know, it's going to be, I think, a big agenda. And as you point out, you know, this will probably be done uh, not just once uh, this year, but also in the, you know, in September or into the fall. And before we get into the how the process uh, will work in terms of having two special sessions, I'm just wondering, is there bipartisan support for these police accountability bills uh, because of what we're seeing across this country, public opinion changing, national demonstrations? Uh, and Charles said in the um, previous segment that, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of faith in, in policymakers these days. And so I'm just wondering, uh, in terms of collaborating at the Capitol, is that happening? Um, I'm not sure. I haven't talked to any of the Republicans, so I can't say for sure how bipartisan this will be. Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of what happens with this bill will depend on the scope. There was a great quote uh, by Representative McGee, I believe, in, in my colleague Chris Keating's story today, where, you know, he talked about how you know, one bill, even a very broad bill that touches on a lot of things, cannot undo, you know, what we're talking about, which is centuries of, of injustice. So I, I think, um, you know, there, uh, the sense is that there's going to be many bites of the apple uh, on this, uh, looking at the, the scope of the issues. And, you know, we will have an election this fall. So come January, a new legislature will be sworn in. There'll be different people for sure. We know that every year there is. And actually this year, perhaps more than some years, because many uh, lawmakers have said they don't plan to run for reelection, including three of the four caucus leaders in um, the two chambers. So um, whatever doesn't get done this fall uh, will certainly be looked at again. Um, I, I think we can say that with with fairly certainty, at least will be looked at again. Whether it will be acted on is is another question, but will be looked at again uh, early next year uh, in the 2021 session. Mm -hmm. 
And we know the regular session was cut short because of the pandemic. So how does the fact that we're still in a pandemic impact how lawmakers will meet and vote? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about that, you know, whether I mean, I, I you know, there's there's some talk perhaps of having um, the Senate, which is a smaller body, meet in the large House chamber. And, you know, there's also talk of allowing a change in the rules uh, of the legislature to permit people to vote from their offices. There's all kinds of things that will have to be done to ensure that um, this is going to be done safely. As everybody knows who's been up at the Capitol on a session day, it's very busy up there. There's lots of people hanging out in the hallways, you know, but basically the the building is sort of uh, busting over with folks, you know, camped out all over. And in the middle of a pandemic, um, things will have to be changed for sure. I mentioned the pandemic. Uh, we know that the the coronavirus is spreading rapidly in many states. In Connecticut, hospitalizations have continued to decline. Uh, before we talk about the fact that uh, Governor Lamont has put the brakes on this next round of state reopening, I wanted to find out uh, what it's been like for our panelists these last several months uh, during the shutdown. Bill Curry, I wanted to start with you. What How's it been, uh, again, uh, tr- trying to social distance? And, and what have you seen from your family, your community members with the last four months of, again, uh, this 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 time where we can't really live our lives like we used to? Well, um, first of all, as someone who writes a lot, I kind of got a leg up on social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it didn't come as quite as quite as much of a mm-hmm. personal shock. Uh, and uh, you find things to do. Uh, my friends, John and Myra Berman and I are having a at least a one meeting book club online to discuss the new Mary Trump book as soon as we can get our hands on it Ooh, nice. um, for its entertainment value. Uh, I've been, uh, I'm becoming proficient at zoom. Um, but I, you know, we all, there's something which is irreplaceable about direct human contact that, that no telephone or television or social media can ever replace. There's something that happens when two people actually meet face to face and understanding of one another, which is, impossible to replicate elsewhere. And I miss it. Um, and I think that we're all, someone said recently, you know, one of the things we're, we're in this stage now that people in every war are in, where we where we start to realize that it won't be over at the first battle of Bull Run, that we're not all coming home in this, you know, in a few months, this is going to be a long haul. And uh, uh, I'm, you know, like so many other people, I spend a fair amount of time now wondering who will be when this is over. Mm. Charles, what about you? And obviously, <laughs> you are a professor at UConn. Uh, classes uh, were suspended. Now campuses are talking about reopening or coming up with some kind of hybrid version for people. I'm just wondering what it's been like for you. You know, I, I, I too am catching up on work. I have ton of reading, a ton of reading and projects that I have been neglecting that I'm catching up now that I have some time. Um, for me, the big challenge has been with my two, with my little one. I have a seven-year-old, and he has a friend next door neighbor. We live here in the North End, in a little bit of a bubble. And just you know, I cook six meals a day, snacks whenever they're hungry, and I run around after a seven and a six-year-old. Um, and it's a challenge watching. I'm enjoying the time with them, but it's a challenge watching them not have social relationships or think about society. And at the same time, for example, my seven-year-old kept asking me a little bit about what's going on with the police and what's going on with uh, these sort of injustices that he's getting through the media, not necessarily through social interactions with other kids. And he's also burnt out. Uh, 
So for me, the, the challenge is, as Bill mentioned, you know, what comes next uh, for my little one. Uh, on a personal level, again, I, I'm loving the time to read and catch up on my work. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm okay with social distancing. At, at a UConn level, I think, or in, I guess every higher institution, it's challenging uh, because we're asked now to prepare hybrid classes or in, in my case, I'm actually planning on teaching physically, but it's going to be a totally different environment with fewer students and lots of risks. And it's going to be, it's, it's going to be difficult for particularly for schools. Mm. Uh, I'm just curious, Daniela, you're a mom, so probably some of the stuff that, uh, that Charles mentioned uh, is relevant to you. Uh, I'm just wondering what you've been experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, a long, what, uh, 900 months? I don't know. <laughs> it feels like it's just been like this forever. Um, but uh, we're making do, working from home, everybody at the current with uh, perhaps very, very few exceptions, uh, is in work-from-home mode full-time. Um, we are going out to cover things when it's possible to do it safely. Last uh, Thursday, I went to Hammonasset Beach, where the governor had his press conference out on an outdoor pavilion, and, um, you know, that was certainly safe. We were outside, and um, we were distant, and I think uh, most of us had masks on, so, um, you know, that, that felt fine. Um, but, uh, you know, everything is different, as we just discussed with the uh, legislature. You know, we nobody thought even, uh, you know, six months ago or eight months ago, you know, last fall that we would be in this situation and we would have to adapt. Um, but, but we are, and, and we have to, and it's sounding more and more like we're going to be adapting for some time to come so the uh, can i just add one thing lucy it's uh uh one it's funny to hear that danielle only gets to go to the beach in order to listen to the governor <laughs> um and and that i hope will change you know soon for us all it's interesting i mean all of us are changing in this and one question is after the after this is over you know what will what, what will persist what what habits won't we go back to you know and and, and it's a mixture of good and bad uh, on the one hand, on, on, on the negative side, uh, I eat more. On the positive side, I read more. Uh, and I, I know which habit I want to sustain <laughs> when uh, when this is over. Uh, and uh, and we'll see. You know, it's been a wonderful. One of the things I've been doing with my time is reading long books that I'd put off all of my life until now. Uh, and uh, and it's been a wonderful. Moby Dick and finishing Ulysses and uh, reading Dostoevsky and all these things that were just too hard to do until I found myself uh, quarantined in a pandemic. Uh, and uh, I, I, uh, I pray I'll keep those habits. Um, we'll see. You know, because people are at home, maybe they're paying more attention uh, to the news bill and maybe what President Donald Trump's been saying recently. He gave uh, two big speeches over the weekend at Mount Rushmore and then at the White House. I'm just wondering if you could talk about uh, what he has said recently and are these themes that will be popping up more in his reelection campaign? Um, sure. And and the things he's saying look like a pretty safe bet to be popping up in his reelection campaign. Um, a lot of people wondered if Donald Trump would finally change faced with the prospect of political mortality. It appears not. Uh, and one thing I think, though, you know, if people are paying more attention because we're all stuck at home. But I have this feeling that Trump's not making as much of an impact. This is a person who has intruded into our consciousness more than any public 
figure, certainly in my lifetime, probably in the history of the country. Uh, you know, getting Trump out of your mind is a challenge. And somehow I feel in these last few weeks, I can feel his hold slipping. Um, a close friend of mine said to me a couple of weeks ago, isn't it interesting that Trump is tweeting less? And I thought, well, no, he's not tweeting. I said he's not tweeting less. He's actually tweeting more. But it's not making as much of, a, of an impression. His punches aren't landing. And the, and the changes in this country that I do think um, are, are deep uh, and, and, and you know, profound, they've left him behind. Listening to the Rushmore and Tulsa speeches, uh, I, one thing that became clear to me, he's trying to find a way to do what Republicans at the top have been doing in this country for a long time, which is delivering coded racial messages. And it is now so socially unacceptable that he has to code them more cleverly. And he's coded them more so cleverly that the, the, the Rushmore speech was just a complete abstraction. You could see in the faces of his own followers in Tulsa uh, and, uh, and Rushmore that the code was, was so clever, they were having trouble following. And they looked bored uh, and, uh, uh, and, and confused. And, uh, and of course, at this point, with all these problems that people are demanding government uh, help for, I'll just point out lastly that he has absolutely nothing to say. He didn't really talk about anything you do about the economy, barely mentioned uh, uh, COVID, uh, took the wrong side of all the uh, uh, of all the racial justice issues. And every so often he pretended to be saying something, he's saying something concrete. He wasn't. Uh, I just issued an executive order to uh, send people to jail for 10 years for defacing uh, statutes. Well, he doesn't have the power to do that. And he was just talking about an existing law. And we send people to jail for seven years for second degree murder, but we're not about to do that. And you could just go down the list. There was nothing, he hasn't said anything substantive about anything in a long time. And he no longer grabs the, the, the news cycle every day. Mm -hmm. uh, as Joe Biden is starting to go out uh, doors more often, Trump, it seems, is sinking deeper into the bunker. Mm. Charles, do you agree with what Bill said? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, what, what I, I'd like to emphasize is this COVID, the impact that COVID-19 mm -hmm. is having on, on his followers and on people in general. That yes. at some point, he, he's trying to overcome that impact and it's not working <laughs> because he can't, he can't, he's, there's no national public health response and he can't, uh, for whatever reason, he'd rather, you know, enable his friends to profit off the crisis than actually address the issue. So in that sense, I think he's the, his base might be eroding a little bit, or at least, and, and there are other people who I think who are motivated to participate. So I, I'm hopeful that there is uh, some sort of different change in November. Uh, but I do agree that he's trying to sort of obfuscate or, or distract people from the failures of, his, of the national response to the COVID-19. Well, they're making a ton of money, him and his friends, and and I think I think that's people are people are facing a difficult time, and I think that's more uh, impactful in their in the way they see the president and they the way they hear the president. You know, they're they're feeling the pain, and the president hasn't been able to overcome that situation. Daniela, we know that COVID nineteen again is spreading in some red states. Do you expect that to impact the president's standing with his base? Um, I'm not sure, but it's not just red states. I mean, um, you know, California has uh, seen a, a big spike in numbers, L.A. County in particular, um, from what I'm reading in the in the L.A. Times. So I, I think, you know, it's it's spreading in lots of places. And, um, you know, I, I think what we're what we're seeing in for instance, in Los Angeles, we're seeing 
It's spreading among younger people, many of them service workers who are out there, you know, going to work. Uh, certainly spikes in the prison population have uh, helped it spread in, in those places as well. So I think it's it's actually spreading in, in lots of the, you know, other parts of the country. I mean, the governor, I think yesterday or the day before, all the days are the same, but um, added uh, a number of states to uh, the um, quarantine list uh, for Connecticut, including Delaware, which uh, I, I don't know much about Delaware, but it's not, uh, I don't believe, a traditional red state. It's Joe Biden's home state. Uh, it certainly has the Democratic members of the U.S. Senate. So I think it's, um, it, we're seeing spikes in lots of places. And, um, you know, I think in many ways, the Northeast, we are the anomaly. Uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, New York, uh, are, are, you know, what we've been able to do here. And again, you know, Massachusetts has a Republican governor. Is it a red state? Probably most people wouldn't view it as such, but does have a Republican governor. Um, so, you know, I think uh, politics um, is only part of the story here, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, before we head to break, I just got to go back to that book by Mary Trump. <laughs> Bill Curry, you said that you're looking forward to reading it. Uh, will that have any impact on this race, do you think? Or is it mostly for entertainment? Well, I, I think you, I think it'll pay a rich dividend on your entertainment dollar, <laughs> uh, for sure. And how much impact it will have in the race in and of itself, I'm not sure. The publisher is a reputable publisher, Simon Schuster, if I remember correctly. And they've used words like harrowing, salacious, and nightmare uh to describe the contents and um you know some of it so far uh is you know it sheds further light on trump's character but if you need to have further light shed on trump's character at this point you might be you know beyond uh, uh, persuasion mary trump however the most interesting thing about this it relates to things that are may happen as as soon as the show is over but certainly this week and that is supreme court decisions um, one on Obamacare, but connected to this uh, on the ability of the New York prosecutor and some House committees to access Trump's tax and business records. And uh, we've learned from all this that Mary Trump is the person that turned over family records uh, uh, to the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, reporters at the New York Times who demonstrated that the entire Trump family fortune insofar as it exists, A, was made by Fred Trump Sr. and B, um, uh, we, is still there court, be, be, because of a series of likely felonies committed concerning tax laws. Um, and so Mary Trump's work, that's also in this book. And that part of what's in the book and that part of what she's already been doing, we've just learned, uh, if, if it leads to those records, by some chance coming out between now and November, it will be a bombshell in this mm. election. Bill Curry is with us on The Wheelhouse, political analyst, former Democratic nominee for governor and advisor in the Clinton White House. Danielle Altamari is also here, politics reporter at the Hartford Current, and Charles Venator Santiago, associate professor of political science at UConn. Coming up after the break, should D.C. get statehood? We'll talk about that, and we'll hear feats of strength, too.
This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. The U.S. House, which is controlled by Democrats, recently voted to establish Washington, D.C. as the 51st state. That may sound like a big deal, but the proposal is unlikely to go anywhere in the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. Under the proposal, the D.C. would no longer stand for District of Columbia. Instead, it would stand for Douglas Commonwealth, bringing it all back to Frederick Douglass. Uh, Charles Venator Santiago, I wanted to start with you. What's your take on, again, this campaign over several years now that uh, D.C. residents want to become a state? Do you see parallels with also the calls for Puerto Rico to <laughs> no, be a state? <laughs> no, but, but it's really important. Uh, so one of the interesting things about D.C. is that it would bring two senators and, and obviously one representative, and it has a larger population than several states in the United States, and they have a balanced budget, and uh, uh, D.C. is a fairly well-organized city with you know, 700,000 to a million people, depending on how you count this, of residents who are not getting the benefits of statehood. Uh, they're getting other benefits, but they're, they're still sort of uh, treated as a sort of suburb of the federal government, if, if that. Um, so in that sense, I, I think this is a strategy by the Democratic Party to mobilize voters or to you know uh, help uh, get voters more enthusiastic. Uh, but again, D.C. is a Democratic or is heavily Democratic, or at least the residents who live there full time are heavily Democratic and mostly minority uh, population. In the case of Puerto Rico, the problem is that the island is bankrupt <laughs> and, and statehood would mean that $120 billion, $150 billion would sort of be up in the air. So until there's any any ability to, to sort of address the, the corruption and the economic failures in Puerto Rico, statehood is out of the picture. Plus, mm-hmm. Puerto Rico would bring two additional Democratic senators and four, up to four uh, representatives who are likely to vote Democrat. So I can't see the Republicans supporting adding four senators and five new rep- representatives mm-hmm. to the House that are likely mostly Democrats. But it, it does help to mobilize or uh, create enthusiasm among, among other voters. Mm-hmm. Bill, Bill, why do you think this vote happened now? Does it have to do with the way the federal government cracked down on uh, residents who were protesting uh, in D.C.? Again, this has been something that D.C. has wanted for some time, but now there's actually there was a vote. Uh, There was a vote. And uh, I think it's the first time that it's actually passed. Um, You know, I I, I think you're right to connect it to, to recent events, but I also just think one of the things that's happened in this country, one of the things that has disabled it, um, uh, it goes back to our founders who were uh, unduly worried about mob rule and majoritarian uh, rule and uh, who built uh, uh, the Senate and the Electoral College. Uh, it wasn't the founders, but later people who built the, uh, 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 the filibuster into the Senate. We have the, the, we have the dispersal of power across all the states and counties and localities putting together a national law. Why, you know, why, do we, why do we trail the world in climate and healthcare and social justice and social welfare? In part because we don't have a functioning a, a democratic government that gives voice to a democratic majority. And so part of the, the, the DC deal, which I'm 100% for, especially having lived there for some years mm-hmm. of my life, uh, uh, is that it redresses what is currently an imbalance. We can't go on with minority rule in America any longer. Uh, and it's also, by the way, Democrats should make more of this. But, you know, the, uh, voting is a, a is a right, not a privilege. And if you don't have anything to vote for, then the right obviously melts away. Mm-hmm. So it's time to enfranchise uh, the people of Washington. And it is time uh, 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 to redress 
what is a glaring defect of our system of government. Mm. We'll have to leave it there. I want to leave time for feats of strength. Daniela Altamari, I'll start with you. We've got about two minutes. Okay, really lame feat of strength, but one that I've come to appreciate over these past few weeks, office air conditioning. Man, it's hard being home without AC. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Vedator Santiago, go ahead. Boxed collections of books like Dragon Masters and Diary of a Wimpy Kid have been really helpful. Nice. And Bill Curry, I'll I'll end with you. I'm just saying that uh, uh, I want to thank all the activists on on some issues that are harder to keep front and center. I'm thinking especially of climate change activists uh, uh, who have worked hard. Uh, This will be the hottest year on record. We're we're headed for a a health catastrophe even greater than, than COVID. And so all the people who work to keep issues like corruption, climate change, national security, and the political debate uh, through the midst of these last six months. Hats off to them for the work they do. Mm. Well, I want to thank our panelists uh, this week for joining us remotely. Bill Curry, political analyst, former Democratic nominee for governor and advisor in the Clinton White House. I hope I can join your book club soon, Bill. Oh, you're in. (laughs) Automatic. Yes. Uh, Danielle Altamari, thank you for joining us. I think from your attic today. Yes, thank you so much. And Charles Venator Santiago, Associate Professor of Political Science at UConn. Thanks, Charles, for joining us on The Wheelhouse your first time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Today's uh, show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 